Start with the set aside prayer. God, please set aside everything I think I know about you, God, the steps recovery, the big book, what's best for me, what's best for others. Especially help me let go of all my old ideas so I can live on your truth. Heavenly Father, help us to carry your message today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. Um, Uh, today we're going to be uh, covering page 59 and how it works. We spent uh, the last two meetings looking at these three pages. I call these three pages that are read at every meeting. A lot of times off a card, the AA, the how it works preamble. Uh, it's how, uh, it's the program of recovery and a lot of information and then it moves right into step three and four in this chapter and then steps five through 11 and into action. And then step 12 is, is in um, working with others and how we practice the principles in all our affairs, which actually is part of step 12, a lot of people forget that, is uh, uh, to wise family afterwards, to employers and a vision for you. And so that's how the book's put together. So today, uh, we came to the point where it says, may you find God now, in the now. Find him in the now. And I suggest as soon as you can. But you don't know how to find God, and the steps are going to help you do that. We may believe in God, but we haven't found the relationship with him yet. And we don't know how to live in the now because we lived our whole life in the future and the past. Uh, some speakers said that alcoholics can't stay in ongoing time. We can't stay right in the moment. We're either in the future with fear or we're in the past with resentment. And then we bring those in to our mind and when we do, we're not in the now with God. So the now with God is a precious thing and it's where we get the power and these steps are designed to help us stay in the now most of the time and when we drift out of it to say, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go down that highway. I want to go back on this highway. And so, um, and then it says you stand at the turning point and the question is, are you going to ask for God's protection and care with complete abandon? And then when we look at step three, after we look at the step three, it says, remember that before you take this step, be sure you're willing to abandon yourself completely to God. And even though we say we do that, when we're not abandoning ourselves to God completely, we have fear because we're managing that area of our lives, whatever we haven't given to God. So the process of abandoning him completely can change all day long. You may give him work in the morning and uh, take it back, and then you may give him your wife in the afternoon and take that back. You see how that works. But we want to do that, because that's where it is. So here are the steps that they took which are suggested as a program of recovery. Now in the original uh, manuscript, it's suggested as your program of recovery. 
and um, said the program of recovery is not a suggestion. It is a program of recovery. They're suggesting that you take it if you want what they have. Now, if you don't want what they have, don't do it. Now, some people will want some of what they have, but not all of what they have. So they end up making their own recipe. And so the steps really aren't optional. It's not an optional program. It is the program. And if you don't take it, then you won't have what they have. And you'll still have what you have. Now, they warn you that you, you, you may want to balk and find an easier, surf, softer way, but you better be fearless and thorough in doing this from the very start. And then if you hold on to your old ideas, the result is nil. Now, what could be your old idea? I don't need to do all these steps. I don't need to do them right away. Uh, um, I'll do part of the fourth step. I'll take my time. Uh, there's making too much of this. It's, it's all sorts of nonsense. Now, how do you break down your old ideas? And how do you, how do you let go of them? But when you start looking at your thinking, you see how all the things that you thought were wrong. All your resentments that you thought were true were wrong. Your fears were wrong. And you harmed others. And when you did it, you thought your thinking was good. And then you could see how your motives were kind of screwed up. And so it says, I'm going to go through these 12 steps. And I'm only going to take 20 minutes. But give me, give me a couple extra in case I get, and we're timing. I, I can see the timer here because I want everybody to talk. So I'm going to go through how they relate to each other and what's in the book about it. So the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And just a few things about that. Admit means to let into your consciousness that I'm powerless over alcohol. Now, I'm powerless over alcohol in two ways. One, once I drink it, and this is what it says in the first 43 pages, once I drink alcohol, I have no control over it. Anybody have that problem? We should bring in a keg of beer here at 10, and then we'll fight over the last uh, bit of it. Uh, and then the second way we're powerless over alcohol is in our mind. So alcohol is a liquid. It's in a bottle. But our mind tells us it's going to do something for me. It's going to change the way I feel. And my mind can't say no to that. That's called loss of the power of choice. Now, they spend the whole chapter on that. You think it's important that we know that? Now, they tell you the disease centers in your mind, and everybody agrees. And they tell you that at certain times, you can't bring into consciousness with sufficient force the humiliation and defeat of a short time ago. But what they're really saying is that we have something wrong with our brains, and they call it the queer mental twist. And they describe that in more about alcoholism and that if you're an alcoholic, your mind will tell you it's okay to drink even when you don't want to. And they talk about Jim. They talk, one thing they talk about first is the man of 30 who had 30 years of sobriety. He told himself that he wouldn't drink till he was retired and successful. So being successful became 
uh, more powerful for him than alcohol. And then once he became successful, he took out the slippers and he was dead in four years. So the point of that is once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. It may take more than 20 minutes, I think, Mark. Uh, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. She thought it was funny. Uh, and the and and that you you never you never change you never become a non-alcoholic. Now a lot of people will come to AA and be sober for a while, and they'll say I'm sober a while so I can drink, I can recover any time. I did six months, you know, blah blah blah. But what they're really saying is that I'm sober nine months and she's still nagging me and the people at work are unreasonable and life is a mess and I'll take a drink. It's subconsciously, and so. Uh, loss of choice, loss of control. And the queer mental twist is described as Jim who went to sell a car for the agency he used to own and he came to work on Tuesday morning and on Monday morning and he got in a fight with the boss. He had a few words it says and then he went to the country to sell a car at a bar. Sound alcoholic? And then while he, while he was drinking the sandwich with milk, it suddenly occurred to him that he could just put some liquor in there and it wouldn't bother him. And he vaguely sensed it was not too good an idea. And then it says, another trip to the asylum for Jim. And then we don't hear about Jim. We don't know what happened to Jim. Then the next thing they talk about is how we're insane. And we, we do this things that don't make sense and we keep doing it. And the example they use is the jaywalker. And the jaywalker likes to run in front of cars. And he gets hit. And he's, when he's young, he's fast. He doesn't get hit that hard. And then as he gets a little older, he gets hit harder. And he ends up in the hospital. And then he decides maybe he won't run in front of cars again. But as soon as he leaves, he runs in front again. And then he gets hit. And it goes on and on. Uh, Steph P, can you mute your phone, please? Um, and so that's the, and that's a description of alcoholic insanity. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. It makes no sense to normal people. They don't understand this. And then the third example is Fred, who's very successful. He's great, but he, he can't uh, stop drinking. He ends up in the asylum several times. And then they talk to him about it, and he says, well, he may be an alcoholic, and... Uh, you know, but he's going to work harder. He's going to do better. And so he goes to Washington and does everything goes great. He's an accounting head. Everything's good. And he uh, has a perfect day. So Jim had a bad day and he drank. And Fred has the perfect day and everything's great. And he goes into the restaurant and, he, and all of a sudden he just thinks that maybe he could have a drink with dinner and then maybe a few afterwards. And then uh, he just, uh, he ends up drunk. He doesn't know how he gets home. But they go to see Fred, and Fred now understands what it means to be an alcoholic. He makes a decision to do the deal, and uh, Fred recovers. And so they want to hammer home that if you're sitting in this room, this includes me, I have no power not to drink today, none. The only power I have is to seek the power which gives me choice. So I pray today, I listen to scripture, I'm here, I'm, uh, I pray to God, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting him into my life to run it, 
and uh, maybe I won't drink today. If I'm with God, I won't drink. If I'm in the now with God, I won't drink. And then the second part of the first step, which a lot of people don't understand, is that our lives have become unmanageable. They think it's, it's what happens after they drink, but that's not what makes your life unmanageable. Alcoholics drink, so of course after you drink, your life's a mess. What they're talking about is sober before the first drink. Why can't you live sober? Why can't you manage to live sober and not drink? Because you're separated from God, you're living a life run on self-will, you get irritable, restless, and discontent, that you're running the world to make yourself happy and nobody follows the script you give them, and then your emotions build up and your mind says, I need a drink. So if we could learn how to live sober in the world, then we wouldn't have to drink. And we learned how to live sober with God. So instead of going to the liquor store, I go to prayer and I get on my knees and I go to God. And that works a lot better than alcohol. I still have emotions, but I try not to let them build up. And I deal with that every day in steps 10 and 11. So then it says, you come to believe that a power greater than yourselves can restore us to sanity. And so how do you come to believe? That's not a very complicated step, is it? If you're completely powerless over alcohol and your life is unmanageable, but how do you come to believe? You come to believe because you see people in the rooms who's, who were powerless over alcohol and whose lives were unmanageable, and they're doing pretty well. Their lives are good. And they're not perfect, but they're good. And you believe that the power that helped them can help you, and that's where AA is supposed to be, we're supposed to share our experience and our strength and our hope with the other person so that the new person will do what we did. And we're supposed, all we're supposed to do as sponsors is show them what we did and tell them if you do that, you might have what I have. If you don't want what I have, don't do it then. You get it? And so uh, that's how you come to believe you go to AA and you see it. That's why the meetings are important that we carry the message. And then if you've come to believe in the, the second step question is the simple question on page 47. Am I willing to believe, am I now willing to believe or do I believe that there's a power greater than myself? And it says as soon as you do believe or you're willing to believe you're on your way. To what? To a new life. Because once you're willing to believe that, and you believe that, you're no longer <coughs> a completely alcoholic. You're letting in the possibility that you're not, you're not capable of running the show. And there is someone who can. Then three, it says you make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as we understood him. Now step three is very misunderstood. It's not very complicated, and it doesn't take a long time to do. If you can see that your life was completely unmanageable sober, and if you see that you're completely powerless over alcohol, and if you believe that there's a power that can help you, and if you're really desperate, if you have the desperation of a drowning man, you're really hurting. I don't want to forget how bad I was when I came in. I was full of fear. It was a mess. Anybody else a mess when they came in? It was bad. And that drove me to make a decision that God's going to be my director, that I'm not going to play God anymore. 
Now, it's not complicated to make that decision. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to decide that maybe I can't do this and run the show. I need somebody else to do it. And I can't play God. Do you know why? It doesn't work. Now, it took me a while. To re I read that uh, quite a bit. And I said, well, what does that mean? And then it re occurred to me, well, you know, I'm not God. And I was playing God, but I'm not God. Never will work. And since we have a new director, a new father, and we uh, put ourselves in his hands. Now, we don't know how to do that yet. But there's a, uh, the third step promises said that once you do that, you begin to get a new sense of peace because you're no longer, you're no longer being completely self-sufficient. And you've made a decision. And then you make a contract with God on page 63. And the contract is that God will give me everything I need. Is that pretty good? Now, it's everything I need that God thinks I need, not me. And, and, and um, I'll get everything I need from God, and then God gets worry. Anybody worry? You don't have to worry anymore. That's God's job. And then what my job is to play the role God assigns, not the role that I assign to God or that I assign to the world so that I'll get what I want, but the role God assigns me. And I stay close to him. Now, how do I know to do that? You work the rest of the steps. So step three won't have any permanent effect unless at once followed by a decision to face and be rid of the things that are blocking me from God. So step three is just a decision. And I hear people, I've heard, I don't know anymore, but I, used, I hear a lot, used to. I turned it over, I took it back. I turned it over, I took it back. And, you know, that may be true, but the decision in step three is that you're not going to play God. And until you know how to work the steps, you are going to take it back. And you may take it back after 10 years of sobriety at 10 in the morning, and then you, you use the principles in step 10, and at 10, 15, you're back on the beam. Because you're going to watch all day long for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's when you're taking it back. That's when you're playing God. And we're going to ask God at once to remove them. That's on page 84. And so I try to do that. And when I do that, I'm in less danger of getting off the beam. And so it says, and then you, once you've done that, you're going to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourselves. And I heard somebody say on Wednesday they were scared of step four because it's, they didn't want to confess everything and this and that. That's not what step four is. It's not about confession. And it's really... Uh, not asking for forgiveness. It's for us to see the truth about my thinking that led me to separate from God. And we're searching in fearless, truthful inventory of my thinking. And all we're looking at in step four is the manifestations of a life run on self-will that block me from God. And there are three manifestations that block me from God. The first one is anger, resentment, judgment, irritable, bothered by people, call it whatever you want. And uh, when I do that, I uh, am blocked from God. I'm living in that. I've made that my higher power. And when I live oneself, then uh, resentment is the number one offender. It blocks me from God. And it's the result of being selfish and self-will. And I have a chart on the site and it's what is self-will. And it's self-will is in the center, 
and then the instincts of life, the social, material, and sexual instincts are run by me, and when I do that, I have three wrongs. Wrong judgment, which is resentment, wrong belief, which is fear, and wrong actions, which is shame and guilt from harming others in relationships. And that's what we inventory. We look at our fears, we look at our resentment, and we look at our conduct in relationships, especially sexual relationships. And then when we have that, we learn prayers by doing that for removal of fear. And we learn how to see things differently, that we're seeing it wrong when we're angry. And then we look at fears. Fear is the, when I rely on myself. Michael, you're relying on yourself, so I get afraid. And we see that I have to live on a different basis, trusting and relying on God. Does that make sense? And when I trust and rely on God, then I don't have fear. And it says if I stay close to him and let him demonstrate through me what he can do and humbly rely on him, then I can handle calamity with serenity. And I actually saw that line, page 67 in the big book, when Curtis died and I was down at the bottom of the stairs and I had the phone and they called me from the ER. And I could see that line. God was saying, okay, Michael, stay close to me, stay close to your buddies in AA, and let them work through you, and you'll get through this. Doesn't mean you be, won't be sad or upset or anything, but you're not alone. You're not walking through alone. And then we inventory our relationships, and we see how we were selfish in them and how we cause the problems in relationships. And that if we don't change the way we see others in a relationship, the relationships are never gonna change. So we make a sane sex ideal, a sane relationship ideal. And I suggest to people that before they start dating someone in AA, that's a joke, by the way, uh, that are new, that they uh, do a sex inventory. And that uh, that might help them not to make the same mistakes in a relationship. And if you're in a relationship and you do that, it'll help you see the other person differently and see how you want to react. So, and it's not very complicated. None of the four-step is complicated. Directions are very simple. We'll be going through them in the next few weeks. And then when you do that, you admit to God, to yourselves, another human being, the exact nature of your wrongs. Now remember, your wrongs are your resentment, your fear, and your harmful conduct but the exact nature of your wrongs is your character defects. And I used to have some of the cards, Mark, if you can hold your card up. And the card, the left and right hand side, is our character defects, which Scott made years ago, 10 years ago or so. And they're on the site called the Spiritual Checklist. And uh, those are the, my character defects. And if I keep practicing my character defects, nothing's gonna change. And that's what I learned from four and five, that it's not, I'm not a bad person, I have the wrong manager. And when I manage, I see things wrong, I'm angry, fearful, and I make bad decisions. And then my character defects are triggered by me running the show and my tree planted in Michael's soil. And then I'm full of intolerance, impatient, judgment, etc., anger, fearful. And I don't wanna live that way. And then so six follows that naturally because then you're ready to have God remove all these defects of character. You don't want to hang on to them, do you? 
because they're, you can see how they, they're, they're killing us. And if I'm disturbed at all today, I, there's a character defect that I'm hanging on to. And all I have to do is stop and pause and say, God, I'm separated from you. I'm back in self. Whatever character defect it is, take it away. Usually I know. A lot of the times I'm just impatient or judgmental. Anybody else like that? And, and just change the way I see it. And then it does. But so they added six because you want to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects and then you're going to get back to, to having an unmanageable life. And then if you practice your character defects, you're going to drink because you won't have God's power. Your emotions will build up. And if you, how long can you go with your emotions building up if you're an alcoholic before you drink? If you come to AA, how long can you go before you've done even what we've talked about so far before you drink again? It's not a lot of work. It's only, uh, let's see, it's uh, 14 pages. We're not asking climb Mount Everest to build a base camp. Uh, it, it's 14 pages of simple instructions in English, very straightforward. And then seven is where I humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Now, the thing that confused me, and sometimes you'll hear it, these two steps I have to do all the time because I don't know what character defects coming to work that I want to be removed right now. But I know when I need it because I don't feel good. And I have to ask him to remove it right away. And that's what step 10, it says we watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear. When these even begin to crop up and we're watching with God, I ask God to take it away at once. So I don't want to spend any more time than I have to being separated from God. Uh-oh. I'm on eight, but I... Can I go five more minutes? It may be more. <laughs> eight is made a... Mark like that. Eight made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Now, step eight is not step one. I remember people who come to the first meeting and they say, well, I came home from treatment and I made amends and she told me to move. And uh, I said, well, maybe uh, you're not ready for step eight yet. In fact, you don't even know how you harm people till you've got to that point. When you do four and five, you can see how you harm people and then you have to see how you can make amends. So you make a list of everybody you harmed and you become willing to make amends to them all. It doesn't mean you make them to all. And what does amend mean? It doesn't mean sorry, but it could be. It means how do you repair the relationship? How do you repair the damage of the past so that you're not afraid of them? The purpose of step eight and nine is so that I lose my fear of people. I won't have the shame and guilt of what I did in the past and I'll be willing to admit to someone when I see them exactly what happened and make it, try to make it right. And that's a great, a great gift. And uh, and then it says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when the do so would injure them or others. Now, you don't want to do it if it's going to injure them or others. And how do you know when to do that? You go through it with someone. You have, that's why you have someone work, help you work the steps. And there's a lot of instructions on amends, pages uh, 76 to 83. And then it says on page 83, there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. A remorseful mumbling won't fit the bill. And that we need to 
show the family how we are living the spiritual life so they can see the change. And then it has a little line in there. It's very subtle. It's in italics. It says, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. You get the picture? And so the way we make amends to the people we really love is we live the spiritual life. And we practice love, patience, kindness, tolerance, consideration with them. And then they see it. Now, they may never forgive us. This isn't about how other people react to us. It's how we react to them. How do we change? We're clearing our side of the street. Now, step 10 and 11 is on pages 84 to 88, probably the most powerful pages I've ever read. And I try to live in those pages. Uh, step 10 says, the promises that we read at every meeting are on page 83 and 84. I don't know that they're the ninth step promises. It's in the end of the ninth step. But they lead right into step 10. And at step 10 says, I'm now in the world of the spirit. And if you look at the promises on 83 and 84, I consider them the world of the spirit promises. If you're with God in the now, you'll know peace. You'll know serenity. If you're with God in the world of the spirit, you'll lose fear of, of people and economic. You'll lose uh, selfishness. You'll lose self-seeking. It will slip away. These are things that just happen when you're with God. The promises aren't something you achieve. They're something that's done to you by being in the world where God is the center of it and I'm not. And so uh, it says you've entered the world of spirit. You want to grow an understanding and effectiveness in this world. That's the whole deal in AA. Living in the world where God's the center and being effective and understanding his, his role for me and being effective at carrying it out. Isn't step 11 where we saw through prayer and meditation improve my conscious contact with God? And praying for only knowledge of his will for him, the power to carry that out. It's pretty simple. I want to know what he wants me to do and do that every day. Now, personal inventory isn't, uh, and when I'm wrong, probably admit it, isn't going around all day and saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's, it's admitting, uh, taking inventory of my personality, my thinking, like you do in step ten, four. And then when my thinking's off, I admit that I'm wrong. My thinking's wrong. And if I do that before I take actions, I won't have to admit to other people because I won't have reacted. But I have to see that I'm wrong and thinking wrong and back and south and inventory my thinking all the time. And it, today you might want to read page 84, listen to the podcast on uh, step 10, the world of the spirit. W-A-D-A-T, that whole paragraph tells you how to live. Watch, ask, discuss, amend, and turn. And those are the instructions on how you live every day with God. And then they talk about the recovered promises are 84 and 85, that you will recoil from the hot flame. The problem's been removed. This will react if you're in fit spiritual condition. If you're fit spiritual condition, it means you're in the world of the spirit. You don't have to be perfect, but you're with God and God will help you see it differently. But they say, warning, warning. Alcohol is a subtle foe and you're not cured, you're recovered. And you have to maintain this, this spiritual condition all the time and be on guard. And then it says, you must carry a vision of God's will in all your activities, must. And what is the vision of God's will in all my activities? To act his character, not mine. 
And then it says when you're, when you're aligning your will with God's will, you can use your mind all you want. That makes sense. If my will is aligned with, with the Lord's will, then my thinking will be aligned with his and my character will be aligned and then I can use my mind. But if I'm not there yet, I can't use my mind. And so uh, that ends step 10 and then you inventory at night in step 11 on page 86 how you, uh, how'd you do? How disturbed were you? Were you thinking of yourself all the time? Of course. <laughs> were you thinking of what you could pack in the stream of life for others? Uh, were you selfish, dishonesty, resentful, or afraid? Who, who was in charge of your life that day? How far did you get away from God? And then you say, you ask, you don't want to get into morbid reflection, so you ask God's forgiveness. That's what we do every night. And what corrective measures do I need? So when I wake up the next day, I'm not carrying the crap around from today, and I can start a new day with God. And then they tell you when you wake up, Think of your plans today. No, it says warning, don't do that. Before you begin, ask God to direct your thinking, divorcing it from selfish dishonest, self-seeking motives. In other words, I want God to be in charge. And my plans don't really matter. What's God's plans for me? And then it says through the day, I may have indecision and I meditate in the morning that when I'm indecisive, maybe I wanna just pause and ask God for the right thought or action. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to react all the time. It really help me at work. I tell the patients, I said, you know, it's, we got a lot of uh, serious problem. I don't say that, but you know, they can see the scans. I said, I, I wanna really think about it and pray about it before we decide what to do. We have different options here and I wanna make sure we're doing the right thing. That we're not reacting. And then in the night it would come to me, what was the right thought or action? And then it says, you've heard do the next right thing. Have you ever heard that in a meeting? Well, the next right thing in the big book is actually on page 87. It says, throughout the day, we want to ask God for the right thought or action, reminding ourselves that he's running the show. And we want him to give us the power to carry that out. And so I don't want to do the next right thing if it's what I think is the next right thing, because I did that my whole life, and I ended up here with the wristband. And then it ends with Bill's favorite paragraph. The final instructions on how to not screw up your life are on the bottom of page 87. It says, when we, go, when we go through the day, whenever we're agitated or doubtful, we pause. Agitated or doubtful means fearful, angry, anything that's bothering you. You're bothered at all. You're irritable, restless, or discontent. Pause and ask God for the right thought or action. Reminding ourselves we're no longer running the show. And then we're in much less danger of worry, self-pity, foolish decisions, screwing up your life. And then there's a whole chapter on, on step 12. And step 12, briefly, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So the result of the step is that I'm spiritually awake. When I came in there, I was spiritually asleep. I was in charge. Now I'm awake, the God's in charge, he's there. If I go to him, if I uh, stay close to him, my life's gonna be different. And he's there all the time. And then you carry this message to other alcoholics, so the only message we have is that if you do these steps, you'll have a spiritual awakening, and your life will be better, and you'll have a power not to drink. 
and it won't be so unmanageable. And then you practice these principles in all of your affairs. That's not emphasized enough. Now, if you don't know what the principles are, you don't know how to practice them, how can you do it? And the steps tell you that. So I'm going to stop there. I, I went a, bit, a little bit long, but it's amazing how, without looking at the book, I could do all that. But I've done it so many times. But the steps have become part of my life, can you tell? It's just part of my life. And so if I get like a fear today, that's my, my fault. It's on me. If I get angry today, it's on me. Can't blame anybody else. So uh, I'll end with that. And we'll pick up with the, uh, the rest of how it works, and then we'll look at step three on uh, Wednesday.